Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. We all to press the button, as you have said many times... And, mm. you know, have a bit of chat first. So here you we know, go. I'm a big fan of David Crowder's History of England podcast, fans from here, blah, blah, blah. Just as interesting, but lighter and more thought-provoking. In fact, the whole purpose is to share opinions and start a debate amongst listeners. Highly recommended. In turn, this has led me on to Wolf's Mid-Atlantic podcast. Also excellent. <laughs> but maybe not the place to go to if you own a red Make America Great Again baseball hat or think the Daily Mail is a UK newspaper. So there mm. you go. It's a compliment for you. No, oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Even, even if it's misdirected. So yeah. where actually are you today, David? I'm in the shed of, you know, Sheddom. And where exactly is home? Because I'm always confused. You're a bit confused by the fact that I go to Norfolk so much, aren't you? When I think of you, I also think of Leicester as well. You know, Leicester is origin, although it's not quite Leicester. So it's a problem. How long have you got? As long as this podcast will accommodate. Okay, so four or five hours then. So, uh... <laughs> Are we not doing a, a hardcore history from <laughs> Dan Carlin, mate? <laughs> I would say Leicester because nobody's ever heard of Loughborough. So it's kind of Leicestershire is where I come from, although it's really Loughborough, but Loughborough, there's no sex in Loughborough. And oh, so... Is the population going to die out, is it? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I think somebody did have sex about 15 years ago, but it was banned after that. Anyway, but you know what I mean. Isn't it? You know, <laughs> Good. And then you move to Oxford. Now, this week's episode. Oh, yes. Um, there's a little bit of a link between it and, uh, and Loughborough. We haven't done uh, the introduction. Don't we have to introduce ourselves? It was the best of time. It was the worst of time. She was the people's princess. We shall fight on the beaches. Oh, hey, man. These are the things that made England. We shall fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body, but of a weak and evil woman. These are the things that made England. And a king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. 
I'm Roy Field Brown, everybody, and I do a whole smorgasbord of podcasts, of which if you have to listen to one of my podcasts, other than this one, of course, uh, why don't you head over to a podcatcher of your choice? Well, you're actually on it now because you're listening to me. Type in Mid-Atlantic and uh, you will find a whole plethora of smart people, smarter than me, talking about UK and US politics. There's also one we're on plethora. There's a plethora of reasons why you don't have to listen to Royalfield if you don't want to. Oh, that, that doesn't sound very polite, David. Doesn't it? No. No, it wasn't really. There are no no reasons at all why you shouldn't listen to Royalfield. That's excellent. And I'm David Crowther and I am from Loughborough, originally. And Loughborough, isn't that uh, the seat of a university that majors in sport it does we used to when i was a lad seb co used to run past our school really yep i saw him in a restaurant about 2008 and i'll kind of always kind of like tell myself off and not actually going up to him and saying hi to him he was just organizing the uk olympics oh is that right this is late so this is 2008 he was sat directly next to our table with, with four people. Right. And as a little kid, I was always a Steve uh, Ovette fan. Oh, is that right? You know, that absolute, that why am I not surprised you're a Steve Ovette man? Because you know, he's kind of like man of the people, wasn't he? More of a man of the people. Exactly. Sebco was all, you know, card-carrying middle class. I like both of them. Well, when they won gongs, I liked both of them, but I like Steve Ovette more. However, in later years, I've grown very much to admire him. Well, he did a great and job with the Olympics, didn't he? He did an amazing job with the Olympics. And so this was 2008. And and I said to myself, I should just say, I always was a fan of Steve Ovet. And you just know a thousand and one people have said that to him. Yeah, but my God. I've got to say hats off to you uh, for the sterling job you're doing with the Olympics. And, and I never did it. I'm not going to say he was an icon of my childhood, but he's definitely iconic. Yeah. Of that period, the 1980s and middle distance running, when Britain did not win any medals for anything, but we were good at middle distance running, weren't we? We've never been yeah. before or since, it's got to be said. Although Roger, Roger Bannister, he was uh, middle distance, wasn't he? Uh, slightly before 1980. Yes. I went to um, a trivia night, as they call them over here, quiz night, uh, six months ago. And one of the questions was, he died this week but who was the first person to run a sub four minute mile? Everybody in, yeah. o- in Oakland just went, oh, oh. It's all right. Nobody knew. And the quiz master says, no one's going to get this. And I went, Roger Bannister. And he went, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> How can you, you not know that, everybody? Yeah, exactly. I says, if you're British, you yeah. absolutely know that name. Well, you, you know, you've got to blow your own trumpet. You know, there's no point not doing that. So this week, David, what are we talking yes. about? I don't know. It's you. You're the one on the on the hand on the tiller at this moment. All right, then. Cool. We're talking about association rules football, more commonly whoa, 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 known whoa, whoa, as. Whoa. Hang on a sec. We're talking about what? Association football. No, no, no. We're talking about we're talking about Quakers and chocolate. No, David. Quite simply, I ran out of time uh, oh, because God. I was researching the bejesus out of football. I don't David, know about football. David. I'm a Derby County support for crying out loud. There you go. And you know what? We can come on to Brian Clough and the Brian Clough derby. And it's one of the reasons why. I'd just like to say how pleased you are to meet me. Famous Clough line. (laughs) (laughs) What a character. 
Leicester City have a penalty kick in the six minutes of injury time in the second leg to go ahead. Here we go. It's a fantastic save. Oh, it's a brilliant save from Almunia. A double save. The initial penalty from Knockout was saved. He got the rebound and it looked as if the rebound had got him, but he saved that as well. And now Watford are on the counter-attack. They're bursting forward. They've got a chance. They've crossed it into the box. Oh, I don't believe this. There's a chance for a Watford. Oh, they've scored. I do not believe what I've just seen. Troy Deeney has scored a penalty. He's scored. Oh, Troy Deeney has scored from a Leicester penalty that was saved by Almunia. And Watford are going to go. It's the championship final. I do not believe what I've just seen here, Jeff. Watford are going to go into the playoff final. Palla dentro, Martins, attenzione, ancora palla buona. Viene spallato via, Oba, acrobazia, via Rigal. A gol, 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 a gol. Maradona just walked away from Hoddle then. Valdano, Hoddle, and appealing for offside, and Maradona gives Argentina the lead. The England players protesting to the referee, and the goal is given. Or was it a use of the hand that England are complaining about? Referee has checked his watch, and we're in injury time, and there isn't much of that. It's all over. Ali McLeod, Scotland have gained their first victory over the old enemy since 1967. And the Wembley pitch, perhaps one shouldn't say anything, uh, crowd invasions have been one of the reasons why fences have gone up everywhere, and indeed are going up at Wembley. And you're really divided between appreciating the delight of the Scottish fans, but not wanting to see the ground pulled apart like this. They've even knocked the goals down and broken the crossbar. You feel for them. I tell you, there's a lot of pressure when you walk up there like that. You know, you know people have missed, and as you say, John, it's sudden death. Baka, amazing man. Not sure if he's a penalty taker, by the way. He's ready now, standing, feet apart, still standing, still waiting. And Baka, right-footed, up he comes. It's saved by Pickford. He got a left arm to it, and Pickford strikes a pose. He punches the air. He twirls his fist, and it's advantage England now. Eric Dyer. And Eric Dyer will walk forward. And if Eric Dyer scores this, England have won a World Cup penalty shootout. Gareth Southgate, who himself missed a crucial penalty for England in the Euro 96 semi-final, watches on. This is the moment, this is the moment for England. This could be a winning moment in a penalty shootout at a World Cup. We've never witnessed this before. It's Tottenham against Arsenal. Dyer against Ospina. He scores! England have won the penalty shootout for the first time in a World Cup. They're through to the quarterfinals. Off they go to celebrate. The referee looks at his watch. Any second now, it will all be over. 30 seconds by. Oh, Watson, the Germans are going down and they can hardly get up. And here comes Hurst. He's got some people around the pitch. They think it's all over. It is now. It's four. Association football is more right. commonly known as football, and it's played by a quarter of a billion players across the planet. Is that right, but are any of them any good? Uh, Ronaldo's pretty decent. There's a guy called Lionel Messi. There are I a can, couple that are pretty I can, good, I can David. take them both, Royfield. Oh, really? 
now this makes it the world's most popular sport by far. But on the world's th- best sport, of course, best world's best sport, as you know, is cricket. Uh, David, we've done that show. All right. Now, association football is the template for team sport around the world, i.e. coloured jerseys, uh, being from a location, etc., etc. Other sports, and there are like, you know... Coloured jerseys? Where do coloured jerseys come from? Okay. Classically, what colour do people play cricket in classically? White. Opposing teams. White. There you go. So you made my point for me. Yeah, that's cricket. Oh, classically, what colour did people play tennis in opposing each other? Okay, you picked a two sport. What about netball? What about basketball? What about baseball? Okay, David, David, do you look back? What about pretty much every other sport in the known world? If you look back at sport from the Victorian era, they're always played in sporting whites. So you've lost that. So let's move on. Uh, yeah, I mean, I hate to be unusually difficult, but we're talking about football and you're talking Have about... Have you had something to drink, David? Like, you are being somewhat argumentative right, and, and in my face today. I, I'd like to formally apologize. I haven't, <laughs> I haven't even friends. got to the second line of this. True, that right. is point. Yeah, right. <laughs> I withdraw immediately. <laughs> and what association football has done is to spread English soft power around the world. Because we founded this sport, I hate to say this, David, but Manchester United is the world's best-known sporting team, even in countries where football is not in the premier sport. Second to Your average Cameron. yank. I did see a list of the rankings of English football teams in terms of um, their historic success, average league ranking, conurbation, capacity of crowds, etc. And Derby County was in the top 20. I'll give you that. We get fantastic crowds. We also bigger. beat Man U tonight. I know, on penalties. Yesterday, yesterday. On penalties. Even in deepest, darkest, um, let's say, Peru, actually, they play football in Peru. That's the thing about football. It's much easier to think of the countries where they don't play it to a competitive standard. And let's do it that way. That is China, who've only qualified for the World Cup once, though there is now a Chinese Premier League. India, and there is an Indian Premier League, but it's full of washed-up ex-players who are way past their prime. Because they play a proper game. Well, cricket is the game of India, it has to be said. David, why is this game the world's number one? Now, I contend there are a few reasons. Yes. Okay. The average man forward slash woman can play it. Now, being ensconced over here in America as I am, and I love American football, but American football is played by athletic specimens who are bordering on freaks. You've got to be able to run. That's not me. Not me. Um, You've got to be able to run um, 100 metres in about 11 seconds. And actually, I remember watching uh, kind of the analysis show of an American football uh, game last year, last season. And they said that the speed that this guy ran for a touchdown, he would have got, he would have come fifth, right. you know, in the final of the Olympics. He's running that fast. These guys are absolute specimens. And then you've got the defensive linesmen who are absolute hulks. Then you've got basketball where you need to really be over six foot five. Though There, are, there is the odd exception to play it to a really you know, professional standard. That doesn't apply with football. You can be 
average size. Lionel Messi, arguably the best player in the world, is either number one or number two, depending on who you believe. Um, he's five foot six, and right? he's the best player in the world, arguably. And actually, the, the story of Lionel Messi is that he was such a talent. And he was when he was spotted playing football in Argentina that he was taken to Barcelona at age 11, 10, 11 or 12, one or the other. And he was small and they said he's never going to make it. So they gave him growth hormone and he only got to five foot six. And growth he's hormone. a world beater. Is that right? Like yeah, what I but... use for my beans? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's exactly the, the right. same stuff, David. But it, it has the same effect. It has the same effect. Things get bigger. <laughs> <laughs> I like that little chuckle you gave there. Um, another reason why it's so popular, it's easy to understand. You don't need uh, yeah, that's true. No a problem. massive book. Got to kick it in that goal. Can't use your hands apart from this one player. That's fundamentally it. So you, you get it within 30 seconds. And another reason why it's taken up by poorer countries, and there is, and there's, there's loads of studies about the equalisation of countries economically with their, their growth. And I think it was in The Economist, I actually saw, saw this article a few months ago, and how countries can get to a certain level kind of quite quickly, but then baking into the higher echelons of football, becoming true world beaters is actually quite hard. It's because only one person in 22 needs any equipment. You know, you can't play. You can't take a ragtag team of American kids and then play American football True. to a standard. We all need kit. So did this um, article on The Economist make any predictions about when uh, England would break into the top tier? <laughs> well, I think technically there's top tiers and then there's top tiers. We're a top 10 world footballing power. So if Seriously? you say the top 10, we are. We are, David. So come on, stop it now. What is the we colour are. of the sky in your world, Royfield? Uh, it's blue and it's the same colour as England's shorts in the 1980s, a very kind of light sky that blue, was which is nice, also always it? disconcerting. Yeah. 1986 World Cup, shorts were too, too light, too light. Should be dark blue for England yeah. shorts. Should have allowed that goal against Argentina, I'm telling you. We'll talk about the hand of God maybe I later. On. This is a, oh, no, it was that game. You could, you could be right, yeah. yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So... You only need one person out of 22 to have any equipment. And, of course, you know, some Americans would say, but what about the goalposts? You put your jumpers down for goalposts. It's as simple as that. That's true, although that leads to a lot of arguments, doesn't it? It can do. It would have gone in off. No, it wouldn't, that sort of thing. Now, there is another reason why I think football is incredibly successful. and This this is all very well, Rockford. I mean, I hate to interrupt you, obviously. Go on. But, you know, what this programme is about is the things that made England and what you're doing and rabbiting on. If I may use the word rabbit in this context, rabbiting on about why football is a popular game. But And I said at the start, it spreads English soft power around the world. Why English soft power? I mean, the Argentinian soft power, Brazilian soft power, German soft power, you know. David, David, because association football was codified in 1863 in England. Yeah, but that, I mean, that's a long time ago. on the 26th of October in 1863 at the Freemasons Tavern at Great Queen Street in London. This is as English as, oh, as what? Cricket. There you go. Football is as English as cricket. Nothing is as English as cricket. Don't be foolish. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm going to make one more point just before I come on to the history of the game. Right. And it took me some time to really appreciate this. One of the reasons why 
football is so successful is because the shot to success ratio is relatively low. So you can have genuine upsets. As I've got older, I've really appreciated that. I like basketball. Yeah. Um, I appreciate uh, the athleticism. And when sometimes you see these incredibly, incredibly beautiful moves and bang, he slam dunks it right at the end. And you go, wow, that was amazing. But culturally, it's a world away from football. When somebody in basketball takes a shot, they're expected to score the basket. Yeah. Expected to. Whereas in football, it's the other way around. Now, the reason why that is critical in football is this, is that you can set up defensively. You can have a team of postmen. And if they and if a team of postmen played Manchester United 200 times, the postman would win maybe once or twice, or at least get a draw every now and then. Okay. And and you see that played out in the FA Cup where just amateur that, teams I just, had a, just had a note from the Royal Mail here saying that they'd like to they'd like to castigate the fact that you've chosen postman as the worst possible kind of football. No, team. absolutely not, because that's one of the beauties of the postmen FA are very good Cup. at playing football. And we always see them on, on grand. Well, I was going to say on grandstand. I'm showing so right now. Football <laughs> focus. Football focus at the third round of the FA Cup. There's always a, an amateur team that's still in it, and invariably uh, they'll say, "And the goalkeeper is a postman, <laughs> <laughs> and and the striker why, why is a plumber." Is postman. It's always a postman. It's always a, pl- a plumber and a postman. Always, but that is really, really key to one of the reasons why football is actually so successful you can have upsets you couldn't have a team of postmen even if there were six foot five playing the golden state warriors at basketball the golden state warriors would win every time it is possible in football for you to set up defensively and for you to have one shot and hope to score one breakaway and then hope to score whereas the attacking team can actually have 20 shots and you can fluke it, you can throw your body in the way. So you can have genuine romantic upsets in football. So that shot to success ratio is incredibly important. Okay. Uh, I'm going to kind of concede that point. Um, I mean, I might say... Oh, I think I'm... Yeah, okay. I'm going to concede the point. I mean, I think I I could argue. I mean, rugby, for, for example, you know, there are plenty of shots there as well. I wouldn't have... Said I'd noticed. No, listen, I'm, them. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say that this is unique to okay, to football per se, but 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 it's, it's one was one of the one of the reasons why, which people don't readily think of. They think of yeah, the average you can be average size and play it. Yeah. People get that. It's simple to understand. But the shot to success ratio is an important ingredient in the reason why we have over a hundred professional teams in this little small country of ours, which only has what fifty five uh, million people. True. True, true, true. All right. So, all right. So, we we started it. We started it in 1863. Now, because of industrialization, Victor- Victorian England and Scotland, it has to be said, yep. had an urban working class that had time and money on its hands for the first time in kind of human history. And through church associations and social clubs, football clubs grew up first in the north and the Midlands of England. 
And yes, because it was association football, because there was uh, rugby football, there is Aussie rules football, etc. From association, we do get soccer. Mm -hmm. And the word soccer is incredibly old fashioned in English. And it was coined in the era of rugger by universities. So soccer is association football. Now we have the world's oldest football competition, the FA Cup, which we've kind of talked about in terms of our plumbers and our postmen. And it was founded by C.W. Alcock in 1872. And it's been contested by mainly by English teams, but there are a few Welsh teams as well ever since. And it is that quintessential competition which pits postmen against professionals, as we said before, culminating in a final at Wembley, a word which sends a shiver down every English boy's spine. Wembley. When you're playing football in your back garden with your cousin and it's jumpers for goalposts, it's a case of this is the final goal and I'm going to win at Wembley. And Wembley is the spiritual cathedral of world football. Is when teams right? come, I mean, it, right. it is. When you hear interviews yeah. with international footballers, though England aren't Brazil no. or Germany, but coming to play or in Argentina. England at Wembley... Or Holland or... Holland. Jesus, David, when's the last time you, you, uh, you actually tuned were, you into world football? You're never going to forget. You're, the you're Dutch, qualify, nowhere near the top table. They didn't qualify for the last Euros. They didn't qualify for the World Cup. You need to update your footballing uh, It's timeless, so. that. It's timeless because they had Johan. They'll always be in the top table. The FIFA rankings will tell you otherwise, sir. Right. But international footballers always talk about the reverence of playing do they Wembley. So they actually they do, do. they do they but always when they're talking to international footballers no 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 international footballers invariably say they say many things right and they'll always talk about the homegrown heroes which they saw growing up as we always do but when it comes to the international game they say i always want to play in a world cup and this is where the english made a big mistake with not uh, entering the first three world cups uh, they'll talk about uh, their local rivalry with uh, the, a neighbouring country. Then they'll say something like, I want to play England at Wembley. That's always kind of within the mix. There's something special about this cathedral of football. There was no Wembley in 1872. First uh, match at Wembley was played in the early 1920s. And there's a right. famous bit of grainy film where there's a policeman getting all the crowd back off the pitch uh, with his white horse. Whatever, and it was Bolton versus West Ham or some, something. I have to say, like some of those old old uh, black and whites of people playing at Wembley are amazing, aren't they? I mean, they had a thing like a hundred thousand people, um, and everybody's you know sitting, sitting all over, standing all over the place, sitting on the edge of the pitch. It's absolutely bloody chaos, mm-hmm. isn't it? But that's another podcast about uh, the orderliness of the of the British, which came about just before the Second World War and queuing, David. Uh, but I think you're queuing yourself up for your podcast later, sir. There you go. We're on foot. All right. So we have this competition, the FA Cup. Every football association around the world, with the exception of one, the MLS have copied it. Quite simply, it's it's a knockout competition. You pit two teams against each other and then the winner progresses to the next round and that goes on and on and on. In terms of its kind of relative kind of competitiveness, because of the unique nature of the footballing pyramid in England, we have the most competitive and actually i'm gonna go back a step is that right, right? So, not- 
Whoa, 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 whoa. So you're saying we've got the most no, no, competitive no, no. league in the world. Is that no, what you're no. saying? We have the most competitive in terms of relative strength in depth. Historically, and I need to go back a step because what I didn't kind of really explain is in the Victorian age, when a lot of these football teams were started. So my team, Birmingham City, is 1876. That's when we were founded. Um, Aston Villa would be a little they bit play before football that. In Birmingham. Oh, stop it. So anyway, I'm not even going to rise to that. Uh, <laughs> we have, in a country of 55 million, now we have over 100 professional football teams. Historically, that number is always given as 92. There are four divisions, the Premier League, the Championship, uh, Divisions 1 and 2, which really is Divisions 1, 2, 3 and 4. It's, it's a nonsense call, calling them anything else other than that. And there is promotion and relegation between those. So the bottom three out of, out of each league drop down into the one afterwards, depending on league position, and then the top three kind of go up. Now, no other country in the world has that many professional football teams so why are we so rubbish then that's not for me to determine in this podcast david we haven't got you could probably do a whole podcast series about it we could people do and even in the the leagues the divisions below the the traditionally professional ones the top four there are teams that are professional or at least semi-professional and you know you look at america a country of 320 million there are 32 American football teams. Right. I couldn't tell you how many baseball teams there are, but it's going to be a relatively similar figure. Ditto basketball. In one sport alone, we have over 100. That's how embedded this game is into English. David, as I said before, that is not for me to investigate and to determine and to come to a conclusion in this podcast. It's embedded within our cultural and national psyche and DNA. But then it is in so many... I mean, you know, going back to the question of, you know, this is a podcast about the things that made England. So going back mm. to that question, you know, you think of the countries all around the world, you know, football is the big game. It's deeply embedded in maybe different ways or whatever, but, you know, it's all about the football. You know, why is it so different here than anywhere else? All right. And, and, and this is just me completely talking off the top of my head now right without you uh, before i have a few notes just to prompt me just to make sure that i say on on, on peace, so that speak. Thing. that's just a plain <laughs> you just ignore it and move on <laughs> well i've let a little bit of light into the magic and how we do this podcast and though we do talk off piece we do actually have notes david <laughs> there, there, there is there is some form to this madness now We've got to be careful when we say, why are we so rubbish, right? And I think one of the reasons why you say that is because we come from a cultural legacy of saying, we invented this game. And that kind of goes back as to one of the reasons why we didn't enter the first first three World Cups in 1930, 34, and 1938. The first World Cup was set up by, um, was run by an organisation called FIFA, which was not founded by us. This is the one kind of football governing institution of which we are part of, um, which is actually quite old. I think FIFA was started about 1908 and we joined, but we didn't take it seriously because of an, an attitude that we've invented this. We are the best. After the first, and I 
think the second World Cup, definitely the second one when Italy won in 1934. Again, England, but also Scotland and Wales did not compete because they said, this is just Johnny Foreigner uh, just mucking about at our game. But we did invite the world champions who were Italy to come to Wembley and we beat them and the press dubbed that as the real World Cup <laughs> final. So we had this very haughty attitude. We must have the British which, press one day on this programme. Absolutely. I think there's echoes of that in actually what you say. Why are we so I think that's a good point. Is, I'm going to consider the point that, you know, we are, we, we have consistent over-expectations. Could I just say, though, 2000, was it 2014? The last World Cup was the first World Cup where we all said, mm. look, oh, we really are rubbish. Oh, okay, we won't get excited about the World Cup. And we duly were utterly rubbish. That was the most depressing World Cup on record, even worse than when Alan Clark didn't get that penalty against Poland and so we didn't go through or whatever. Goodness, you are going You know, what back. you've got That's to be. Like 73. Mindless optimism is the spirit of, uh, of English football. Mindless over-expectation. Well, That's what I think, David, I've got a lot of time for you in many You're respects. Just but I think me. when it comes to football... Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm just going to give you a home truth. I think your views of English football are somewhat outdated. Football full stop are somewhat Seriously. outdated. Right? The, very, the very fact that you thought the Dutch were still world they're all, beaters. They're always tells going to be world everything. beaters for me, Royce. Just like you'll always be a world beater <laughs> but, for me. If you live in a perpetual world of the 1970s, yes, the Dutch are world Where beaters. Where else do you want to be? <laughs> Those flappy With flares flare and brown pinstripes. Yeah. Going back to your original question, relatively speaking, and absolutely speaking, we are not absolutely rubbish. Every nation on the earth is in the FIFA rankings. So the bottom is going to be round about number 200. And I tell you, England is unique in one respect in the World Cup. We are the only non-sovereign nation to win the World Cup. This is England, not the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. So in that regard, we absolutely are unique. So number 200 is going to be, I don't know, somebody like country like Kiribati or something or another. It's going to be an oceanic country. We're nowhere near that. Consistently in the last... Um, I don't know, 30 years, England would have been ranked maybe as high as five or six and as low as maybe 15th in the world. And what this means is that we consistently, not always though, not not absolutely always, but we do qualify for the major championships, whether it's the European Championships or the World Cup. There has been the odd flub, but we're nearly always there. And invariably, mostly we get through to the knockout stages. So we're not absolutely rubbish, but it's expectations, as you said before. We do expect to at least get to quarterfinals and semifinals. And actually what does us and makes us feel somewhat inadequate is, I would say, fundamentally two teams, Germany and Brazil. We have a historic rivalry for a whole load of other reasons which aren't really to do with football. And then football is laid on top in 1966 with Germany. And then the way that the Brazilians play football. And and we say that is beautiful. The way that they play is so technically beautiful that we can't attain that. But actually, if you are to take out Brazil and Germany, who are the two most successful teams in world football, take them out of the FIFA rankings, we've got nothing to be ashamed of. Yes, France have just won the World Cup again, 
but it's only the second time they've yeah. ever won it. Historically, Spain are actually now massively overachieving, and so are, so are France. So if you take out Brazil and, and Germany, you know we're not, we're not right. that you, terrible historically in terms of our rank. Convince me, but it's it's weight right. of expectation. Weight of expectation. Why is it particularly English? You know, we right. passed by the fact that in 1863 we created some rules. We didn't invent it. Mm. Scotland actually invented the thing about passing and going forward. Um, Queen's Park. So every big culture in the world, of you know, vast numbers of them are all about you know football. Well, well, I've given you so I've given you some hints. I've given you some hints. Right, this is English because we are the only country in the world that can support this amount of professional teams. And let's put this in some kind of perspective. And I have mentioned American football. In a country of 320 million, there are only 32 American football teams. And I appreciate there are other sports in America which are kind of almost on an equal level. Okay, so that's number one. Fine. So you say we've got a lot of league teams. And then... Italy, more than Spain... Oh, gosh, much more than Italy. One of the problems with Italian football right now is that Serie A, their their top league, Serie B is so much weaker. The teams that always get promoted from Serie B to Serie A nearly always get relegated back down here, isn't it? No. Huddersfield survived last year. Swansea survived in the Premier League for seven years invariably one, if not two, of the promoted teams actually does survive. Brighton did not get relegated last year when they were relegated. You know, the language there is Brighton did not get relegated. You know, English football now is dominated by, what, four teams sort of thing? Uh, Six. You you, you could argue When we were lads, Royfield, when you were a lad, it was 17th century. But when we were lads, it was, you know, any... I thought I was a young whippersnapper. (laughs) Yes, David, 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 what has happened since the advent of the Premier League is almost un-English. And you're completely right. If you look from the early 1970s backwards in English football, its champions are many and varied. Huddersfield Town have won the championship more than once. Cardiff City have won it. How many times have Birmingham won? Burnley, Wolverhampton. But what happens in the 1960s, what starts to happen in the 1960s, is actually match of the day. And the reason why match of the day is important is that what it did, it put on football matches on TV on a Saturday night. And what happened slowly but surely was that people in small towns that supported their small towns slowly but surely started having Manchester United, Liverpool, uh, Manchester City, as was back then, because they, they won the championship in 1968 as their second teams. And then they became their first teams. So by by the time of the early 90s, when the premiership comes along, you, you look at the spread of people that actually won the English championship and it actually becomes less mm. varied. And you can almost arguably say it kind of stops when Nottingham Forest won it. Here was a team. Yeah. In the seventies, yeah, well, who were who came as a Derby County supporter? That was a complete disaster, obviously. But yeah, you know, I take the point. They came up from the second division, they were promoted and won the first division at, at, at their first try. That is almost inconceivable. Yeah, well, yeah I mean, but that's the Leicester one. Leicester, Leicester, almost. You know, that was yeah. extraordinary, and they were in the Premier League. It was extraordinary. But if that had happened in the nineteen sixties. 
no one True. would have blinked, you know, because your Burnleys and your Boltons were winning championships in the 50s and the 60s, you know, teams of that ilk, not necessarily those teams that Burnley did win. So remind me again how many times Birmingham's won it? Um, precisely none in 140 years. Yes, yes, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So the 60s is an important time in English football, not just because it's televised for the first time in England and then subsequently then around the world. But this is the first time really in the 1960s where, where working class men could travel quite cheaply to away games because of relatively cheap train fares. You know, it didn't really happen in the Victorian era. But in the 1960s, it does happen, which does push us onto the rise of actually football hooliganism. Well, I was going to say, look, because, you know, so far I've been a bit unconvincing about why football is particularly English. But I suppose the exceptional thing, or how exceptional is it, question mark, is, you know, English and football hooliganism. Well... I don't want to spend too much time on this because I saw on our Facebook group that people are oh, yeah, English, football hooliganism, that is something quintessentially English. It kind of isn't now, but it definitely started in England. There's no two ways about it. And it starts because of cheap travel in, in the 1960s, relatively cheap travel. It, this, this is an era where football is exciting and sexy and young working class men can jump on a train and go and follow their football team. And maybe I haven't really made the point that what is really important in English football, and I'm going to say really in sport around the world, apart from the US and, and Canada, apart from North America, is that Manchester United, for example, play in Manchester. The most important part of their name is Manchester, not the United bit, whereas in American sport, it's kind of the other way around. So, for example, the Oakland Raiders play in Oakland. However, they have been called the LA Raiders and they're going to next year move to to Las Vegas. Las Vegas Raiders. It's not an outrage. David, People in Oakland are so well, upset would about be. it. I remember the Phoenix, the yeah. Cardinals, was it? The Cardinals, where did they move? They moved to Phoenix, didn't they? Where were they before then? Yes. Oh, gosh. You now, now, you, now you're asking me to think. But this is something which cannot happen. It's football, only happened that, once that's in That's not English an all football. model in football, isn't it? I mean, in football, you know, Barcelona, Barcelona blah, 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 no. blah. Yeah, exactly. So, and that's how embedded the teams actually are in location. A lot of these teams, if you remember what I said at the start, started from church associations. So Sheffield Wednesday were a church team. That's where they started out of the church. And all these teams started off as neighbourhood teams around a church or an incredibly important fabric of, of locality. And then on one of the aspects of that, how that gets played out in the 1960s, is a stark kind of hooliganism that people are so proud of coming from let's say, the east end of London, the part of the intercity firm, which is the West Ham's uh, group of hooligans. And when they travelled away, it's a way of saying West Ham are better than Millwall. My area is better than yours. And this gets played out or fought through through football. Again, area, location, so important. 
And then by the by the late 1980s, football hooliganism gets so bad that UEFA, the European governing body, actually bans English teams from actually playing in European football competitions for for, uh, for about four years. Because when English teams are going to play abroad in Europe, then it becomes almost like a nationalistic thing. You know, you're not just representing, say, Fulham or Leeds or whatever. You are English and, you, and you're fighting the Bosch, so to speak. So the question would be so, why England yes. rather than, you um, know, why hooliganism? I mean, all these things you've talked about are in a sense true for every European country in particular. So why We seem to have got a handle on it. I think it started here quite simply because we have so many teams and because civic rivalries actually meant something. So, And these kind of do play out in the local derbies or the rivalries of many English football teams. But you look at the history of hooliganism, I was looking at it today, and when East Germany was still a country, there were East German uh, spats of hooliganism, Dynamo Leipzig against Hertha Berlin. And you can see the picture, and it's like 1989, and they're fighting each other. You know, so, so you're trying to claim that football hooliganism isn't particularly English? I'm going to say it seems to have started in England, but dare I say it, we bequeathed it to um, nice certain bits of I the mean, world. I mean, you know, we're generous sharing kind of people here in England, aren't we? <laughs> it goes to how embedded this game is, or at least was, um, in the working class, but also with location so you have rivalries big rivalries like Liverpool versus Manchester United and that rivalry plays out on two levels number one these are the two most successful teams in English football historically it used to be Liverpool but now the mantle has been passed on to Manchester United in terms of the amount of titles they've actually won but also it's because of location because there's a rivalry between Liverpool and Manchester Um, kind of mentioned this one before you've got Millwall versus West Ham now, Millwall now playing South London. Historically, the area of Millwall is actually the east end of London and then the neighbouring team was actually West Ham. You can't get a more working class, blue-collar derby than Millwall versus West Ham. This is local passion and rivalries in a way that you don't quite get with, um, let's say, in American sport, yes, there is the Green Bay Packers versus the Chicago Bears. But these are two cities. These are two neighbourhoods in London. Are you trying to say that they didn't have any prawn and cocktail sandwiches at the uh, the games? A- absolutely not. Actually, I'm told, just to sort of feed a bit into hooliganism, thing, I'm two facts. I've, I've you- moved on from hooliganism because we shouldn't, like, you know, we, we spent, I think we've actually spent more than enough time on it because this game has so much to be lauded for but we can't spend too much on hooliganism. But I'm going to defer to you for this one point, and then well, I'm going to move two on. Two points. Okay. First of all, Derby has got a claim to fame in this. Apparently, the riot act was a uh, relative game in Derby in 1846. How cool is that? And secondly, apparently, one of the reports I read... But I would have thought, though, David, that, that, that in 1846, that's before the laws of the game were codified, oh. by far. Not before the riot was so, codified, though. Well, I'll yeah, but, the third but, banned but, but, football but, in... Whoa, God whoa, whoa, was. whoa. Let's just deal with one point at a time. At that point, there would have been literally no, no difference between the game that became rugby and the game that is football. That is true. I mean, that is true, because so, it was village-wide. Actually, I have to say, it sounds like a great game. You know the way that medieval tournaments used to take place over miles? You know, you think of jousts. Uh-huh with sort of sticks and between a, over a fence sort of thing. It's got a proper name. 
Well, so they used to be done over miles, a bit like um, what's that thing, thing with Yul Brynner, the robot, Westworld. You know, it goes uh-huh. on over miles and miles and miles. And it was a bit the same with football. So you'd go on and it was between villages and they'd play over the whole area of the two villages and people would be hiding. It would go on for days. Anyway, sounds great. Sounds a bit like paintball. <laughs> anyway, sounds really good. But we can't do that now. The I other fact I was going to give you was that the, the emergence of, of football hooliganism was linked to the violence in Latin American football. So I mean, I'm not going to blame anybody, but... You know, is it a bit of a? Um, is it right that actually it was actually uh, England that created football hooligans? Well, what we didn't do is in the late sixties when this phenomena started to rise in England. We didn't consciously import it from South America. It could well be that it started there first. And being a student of history, you kind of have an idea of the sociological reasons why it would, because it's the one expression where you could display your disaffection with the authoritarian regime that you're living under. You can just go and beat somebody up from the opposing football team if you're a Boca Juniors fan and you're playing River Plate because you can't beat up the police because they're going to throw you in a cell and probably do away with you. But but we didn't have those sociological, political pressures. So maybe it did technically start in South America, but we didn't import it from there. And actually, dare I say it, last word I'm going to say about it because I, I think really it's such a footnote and the whole beautiful game, which is football, is that we do export it. Modern football hooliganism, as we understand it today, um, the whole world uh, sees it as something that the the English bequeathed. They do. So you've got a fierce rivalry, Burnley versus Blackburn. Why? Because they're two mill towns relatively close to each other in Lancashire, and they have had... Rel- relatively middling success historically in terms of football, but the two relatively small towns separated by a few miles, fierce football rivalry. Leeds versus Manchester United. This, David, is a proxy for Yorkshire versus Lancashire. In other words, it's the War of the Roses played in a football match. And, and Leeds play in white and Manchester play in red. And if it's the War of the Roses, of course, it's the footballing equivalent to the Game of Thrones. Now, there is another footballing rivalry, which means an awful lot to me personally, and I tell this story so often, but it's Wimbledon versus MK Dons. Obviously, there are many, many, many other football rivalries. Birmingham City versus Aston Villa would be one. So, That's quite and, a big and again, one, isn't it? It, it you know it is relatively big. It, it's not box office like let's say uh, yeah, Celtic versus Rangers for it because they broke the rules, didn't they? What are you talking about? The MK dance by going from Wimbledon. Oh yes, yes, yes. I'm sorry, I thought you were talking about Birmingham City. So okay. I'm going to tell this story and hopefully I'm going to tell it succinctly. But to me, this gets to the heart of why English football is a beautiful game and. And the way that it's structured is so, it's not unique because we've given this model to the rest of the world. And I only wish that American sport took this uh, physical model up of actually how you have a pyramid of success. So there was a team called Wimbledon that played football at a place called Plough Lane in Wimbledon, South London. And although founded in round about 1920, for the majority of their life, they played in the Southern League. They were, so they were an amateur, at best, semi-professional team. In the late 1970s, 
they broke into the football league, which means they become professionals. That means so they get promoted into the professional leagues by being very good semi-professionals. And because of the way that they played football, it was very physical. They found themselves within 10 years of being promoted into the football league in the top division. So they are playing Manchester United. It's a very romantic story in terms of sport, but they did not play football in a romantic way. Because of their rapid rise throughout the football league, they didn't have a big stadium with loads of supporters. So Wimbledon would always be the team which had the lowest attendance in the Premier League. By the time we have the Premier League in 1992, Wimbledon are still there. So they would get, let's say, 10,000 people at a match, whereas Manchester United would get 65,000. Because of tragedies to do with English football in the late 80s, there was a fire at Bradford and there's a a stampede at, at, at Hillsborough. The government said football stadiums need to be of a certain standard by a certain date. Wimbledon tried to upgrade their ground. The local council says you can't do it. This led Wimbledon FC to then do something which is unheard of in English football. They petitioned to leave the the neighbourhood of Wimbledon and to play somewhere else where they could build a new stadium. The Football League, for the only time in 170 years worth of history, said, yes, you can you can move away more than 35 miles, which is the rule. Wherever your team historically was, you can't move more than right, 35 okay. miles away. Yeah. And they allowed them to go to Milton Keynes and, and set up a new team. In other words, they became a franchise. And the whole of the football world, and because this, this went through beyond England, were just horrified. You do not do this. They are called Wimbledon for a reason. And to be fair to the chairman of Wimbledon at the time, because they couldn't play in Wimbledon anymore and they were ground sharing with Crystal Palace, I think at one game they had like 2,000 supporters. It was the lowest Premier League match. So they had big problems, but really it's caused by the local council not allowing them to redevelop in the borough of Merton, which is where they historically played. So they go off to, to Milton Keynes and they changed their name from Wimbledon because they're in Milton Keynes now to MK Dons, Milton Keynes Dons. Now, and this is where the story becomes beautiful. The supporters of Wimbledon refuse to follow that team. So when supporters say we, we won today, they're absolutely correct. That summer, 2000 Wimbledon fans turned up at Wimbledon Common for trials for a new team called Wimbledon FC. AFC Wimbledon, sorry. And they said anyone can come, young or old, and try out. And after two days of trials, they whittled it down to, I think, some 40 players. They started off in, I'm going to say, Tier 7. So they didn't go right to to the end. There is a Tier 11. So there are 11 tiers of football before you get up to the Premier League. I think they started in about 7 or 8. And... In their first match, they had something like 4,000 fans and, in effect, the equivalent to a village football match. They progressed in less than 10 years through the amateur leagues, through the unprofessional leagues, back into the professional leagues, whereas MK Dons kind of somewhat stagnated. The two teams played each other for the first time, I think, about five, six years ago, unfortunately, it was in in an FA Cup match, unfortunately, Franchise FC, the bastards from from, uh, Milton Keynes actually beat them. But that game, David, was just so important. 
to English football because it said this is about place, this is about community, this is about men and women who are from Wimbledon playing against a corporate franchise made up bullshit team. I've always been an AFC Wimbledon fan. I'm a Birmingham City fan, but actually AFC Wimbledon are my second team. And I always look for their results second because they're everything that's right. And and they go to the root and the soul of football. It's about location. Wim- say that you are AFC Wimbledon means you play in Wimbledon and the fans save that team. I can happily report that now in 2018, MK Dons are a division lower than AFC Wimbledon. The two teams have passed each other on the football pyramid. And I hope that MK Dons get relegated into the non-leagues and just get disbanded eventually. It's everything that is wrong about professional sport. I love American football, but the franchise nature of it is absolutely horrible that a team which I like, which I'm going to see actually on Saturday, so I'm sorry, on Sunday, uh, the Oakland Raiders can move yeah. somewhat 50 miles, 60 miles to Las Vegas because it's a TV market. is just utterly horrendous, utterly horrendous. And I think the story of AFC Wimbledon goes to the heart, really, of the beauty of of football and how it's embedded into the DNA, the psyche, the lifeblood of England. Because those 2,000 Englishmen stood up and said, no, we're going to go down the common, we're going to form our own football team, and some 15 years later, they're in a division higher than the team that took their place. That couldn't happen anywhere else than England. So, yes, you know, football is definitely one of the things that made England, and, and it's kind of reflected back. And to show you how this game has gone throughout the world, this summer I watched England play Colombia, um, World Cup um, last 16 uh-huh. match, and I watched it in Toronto in Canada with 2,000 Colombians um, outdoors. The World Cup makes the world stop. For those four weeks, the world stops and watches football. And I know people from America are starting to realise how big the World Cup is. And America in the last 20 odd years has done relatively well. They qualify for it now. They didn't qualify for the last one. But Americans don't get it. They call all their games the World Series and all this kind of nonsense and whatever. And you know the rest of the world just raises its eyes and just goes, oh, there you go. Americans being Americans. I was in Toronto, Canada with 2,000 Colombians watching in outdoor watching uh colombia play england that's how important this game is the world absolutely does stop for this and we bequeathed it to the world um, we have to stop at some point you know that's it that's it you've I've come, to, come, you've to, come to a final conclusion so what you're saying is that i think the argument is it's more embedded in the english game than everywhere else and we beat each other up more than anybody else is that, have I sort of summarised that correctly? And I spoke quite passionately about this, and and I haven't really put a really cogent. I, you know, I didn't want to say that. Obviously, exactly. no, 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 no. I talked somewhat off the top of my head, and I went on a mini rant about. I mean, you know, um, about Wimbledon, AFC Wimbledon, because it because it because it means such a lot to all football fans. And just just on a on a last note about AFC Wimbledon, whenever they play MK Dons in the league they also just call them mk 
in their football programs and also on any of the signage because they've played about five times now and because they will not recognize the dons bit because the dons is yes. their nickname yeah and they always get fined by the football oh, league and they say okay ne- next time next time we'll, we'll we'll put we'll do their full title they never do <laughs> they never do <laughs> and whenever they play the football kind of community and I kind of hate that expression when you know, you know the community of people that are in, into any kind of thing the football community always are behind AFC Wimbledon. Every fan just says, "Well, there's only one team that's bought okay. in this game." Okay. Look, anyway, so, so we, get, we need to the see. point. The point is, if you ask me a question, I, I went off on a rant again. <laughs> the point is this: this game is embedded into the very psyche of our nation, like no other. Cricket has a symbolic Englishness, but if Durham were to go out of business tomorrow, it wouldn't cause the ruptures that, let's say, Newcastle United going out of business would. And, and- I think that's absolutely you know, true. So fair enough. Um, however, mm. my point is that that is the same, that it is the same the world over. Yeah. Football is by far the world's most popular yeah. game. Yeah. People are incredibly passionate. You know, and you go to say Italy, things Spain, like, and, and in, in Italy, in Italy, when they take a free kick, right, when they take a free kick, David, David, in Italy, but when they take a free kick, what do they call it? Because we founded this sport, they call it a free kick, right? Okay. So what is the biggest league in the world in terms of television rights? It's the Premier League. Because we founded this sport... And also because of the, the British Empire. The, the, though, funnily enough... How no, does the no, British Empire get into this conversation? Well, quite, quite easily. Because on, we man. were the masters of the waves in the late Victorian age, we took the game to Argentina. There's a reason why AC Milan are called AC Milan, not Milano, because it's founded by an English person. Atletico Bilbao play in red and white stripes because the person who founded it was a, was a Sunderland fan. Literally every football association, the older ones throughout the world, were founded either by English expats or have some kind of English roots. At the end of the Victorian era, Argentina was an an economic colony of the British Empire. It was never a formal one. That's the reason why football became so big there. We could go on and on and on with all these reasons why uh, teams are called what what they are th- throughout the world, and you scratch uh, the surface of the oldest teams throughout the world who aren't actually in the in the English speaking world. And there's always an Englishman there, you know, always, always, always. And the famous example is Atletico Bilbao, um, is AC Milan, and then football going to Argentina. So we've given this game to the world because we founded this sport. And at its heart, that is the reason why the Premier League dwarfs Syria in terms of uh, television rights, dwarfs La Liga. Manchester United are the richest team in the world. Though they're actually on a part, only just ahead of Real Madrid and actually Barcelona. But then the next richest teams would then be Liverpool, Chelsea, Manchester City, Arsenal. You look at the top 10 richest teams in world football, eight of them are English. Okay, I'm going to give it up now because 
mainly because we need to finish. Um, well, and I think you've been talking for about four hours now. Uh, I think you're fine. It's only so been a very sort of succinct <laughs> hour, David. <laughs> this is the next four podcasts. They're all on football. Uh, so look, this okay. Been somewhat longer than Road Signs and Margaret Calvert. I'll give you that. <laughs> Probably for a fair enough reason, it's got to be said. So, okay, I'm going to go with it, but just just because I think you kind of beat me into submission, and it is true, I suppose it kind of starts, the codification starts here, if not the uh, not some of the other aspects. Um, I still think, you know, the rest of the world does football now almost as passionately, as, or just as bit as passionate as we do it. Yes, I will give you that, David. When it comes to passion... I've not said that we're more passionate about it than anybody. The Argentinians are incredibly passionate about it and the Brazilians. But what we have is the length and breadth of the country. We have local teams that play to a competitive standard. And that is not replicated anywhere else in the world, not even in Scotland. We have something which is absolutely unique. And it goes all the way down to the power of AFC right. Wimbledon. Okay, stop talking now. All right, social media roundup. <laughs> <laughs> we'll move on. So, David, can we now do the social media roundup? Because I'm, I'm literally spent. I'm exhausted. I, I can't exult <laughs> I can the beautiful game empty. anymore. You're empty. Now it's a little bit of Fiona with a social media roundup. Hello gang, Fiona here. Fashion. David proposed. Royfield seemed to agree, although they mostly seem to agree, that it's a London thing. So do they think that those of us from the countryside still wear smocks? Well, yes we do. If they're made by Laura Ashley, they look marvellous with a pair of wellies. Fashion. Is it something that made England? 46 say yes, put it in the cabinet. Am I sensing a pattern here? Will everything go into the cabinet? Eleven for no, two undecideds. The other day I was in a restaurant, I live in Pennsylvania, when a lady came up to me and said, You English always dress so... English. Apart from the Welsh blood in me wanting to rise up and smite, I had to wonder what she meant. I was wearing shoes, tights, a skirt, a shirt and jacket, all bought in America. Then it occurred to me. I was, as usual wearing a silk scarf. I'm invariably wearing a scarf, usually silk, usually old, that I've inherited from my mum or grandmother. Then I realised that in all of our discussions, nobody had mentioned the tendency of many British women to wear simple clothes with scarves. And apart from David during the discussion itself, there's been very little chat about that other icon of the Briton, the Welly. In our Facebook chat, Royfield posted a picture of himself looking almost perfect in Aaron's sweater and cloth cap and said, as most of you know, I'm a fashion icon and here's the proof. Prove that you're cooler than me by posting a photo, which you did in droves. Now, these posts are, of course, very visual, so I implore you to scroll down the page. You'll soon be gasping at Tim in his elephant flares, howling at Luke in his... I'm not quite sure how to describe Luke. Smiling at Jacqueline P., the stylish child from the 60s, and sighing with delight at Jacqueline B., with two children, London circa 1990, emulating the style of Lady Di. Rebecca wisely commented, 
I think your idea of English fashion influence is limited. For example, the influence of the English riding habit or the occult and mystical attire worn in the early 70s. Steve took umbrage at David, saying, Hey, you were close to dissing the mighty, mighty Spandau Ballet. Interesting fact, the Spandau guys saw dressing up as an expression of working-class culture. Michelle said, I loved Laura Ashley. I'm right there with you, Michelle. And after I posted a number of pictures of the fashions of England circa 67 to 68, Eddie said, I'm having a 60s flashback. Wish I was old enough to really appreciate swinging London of the 1960s. It was super, Eddie. Absolutely blooming fab. There is lots more to talk about and to look at on the Facebook page. So put on your wellies and wade in. Thank you for that, Fiona. Uh, David, yet again, another slam dunk, home run, hole in one from me. What are you talking about next week? Uh, next week, we are going to talk about queuing. Oh, Jesus. Quintessentially Let's... English, uh, Canadian but... and Singaporean. Uh, <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Fantastic. And don't forget, folks, please write us a review on uh, a podcast of your choice. Really important because it gets other people to know about the wondrous podcast that is the things that made England. So go write it now. Thank you. Toodaloo. Bye-bye. Bye. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.